It's great to have Lee Beach with us. Lee and I connected a number of years ago when I was doing my master's degree at McMaster, uh, McMaster Divinity College. And um, Lee's just a fantastic guy and got to know him a little bit as uh, a prof and an instructor and leading in my master's degree. And a number of years ago, Lee wrote uh, just a, a wonderful book called uh, The Church in Exile. And uh, we've had Lee a part of our, some of our some of the going on. We had you actually for a conversation a few years ago when we were City View Church, and now we've kind of rebranded as Praxis. That was just such a meaningful time. I know a lot of people really enjoyed the conversation we had. And so we've been doing this. I've been teaching this course at Master's College and Seminary, um, Mission in Post-Christian Canada. And then we've had this theme at Praxis this fall. Uh, really, the big question has been, uh, is it worth it? We've just been kind of been putting everything on the table and uh, just asking the question, is like church really worth it in a post-Christian kind of pandemic-shaped world? And so as I, we were kind of wrestling in both these worlds, these, some of the students that are engaging here had uh, wrestled through the question of how did we get here with post-Christian, like the post-Christian context? Here we are. What are some of the um, sociological changes, some of the changes that, that have happened? And then we've been having these discussions in church. I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to have you back and just chat through this. So it's great to have you here. Why don't you take oh, a minute? Thanks. Why don't you take a minute and just tell us a little bit about yourself, just uh, what you do and day to day? Sure. Yeah. So, well, as Drew mentioned, um, my, I, my, you know, vocationally, I work at McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton. I'm the associate professor of Christian ministry and director of ministry formation there, and uh, that's that's my my job. Uh, uh, prior to that, I was a, a, a local church pastor uh, with the, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance for uh, 18, 18 years full-time and a few years after that part-time while I was also work doing my, my doctoral work. And, um, and I've been at McMaster now for 16 years. And um, so yeah, I live in Ancaster, Ontario, and I'm married to my wife, Joanne, and I have two grown children uh, a boy, my son, who uh, lives at home here with us, and my daughter, who's married, lives in Hamilton, though, and uh, they're both uh, both adults. But uh, uh, yeah, and those are my sort of. That's a little bit about me, anyway. Cool, cool. Well, um, one of the things I love about you, Lee, is just um, just your passion for the church, and kind of in an academic setting, teaching people and leading people. Uh, to think deeply about church and ministry, and I know you've shaped pastors significantly over the last number of years, which is amazing, last 16 years and more. Um, so let's get into it. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, I thought that today we could talk a little bit about the post-Christian church, how we got here. Um, we'll talk a little bit about exile, and then I know you're a little hesitant to do this because nobody knows the future of looking into the magic crystal ball of what the future will look like, but uh, maybe we can take a minute and talk about um, just the church of the future and what, what maybe the best posture is for the church. But, um, you know, we've wrestled through, and I think we talked about this the last time you were, at, you were with us share a little bit of just what you feel have been some of the things that have got us towards post-Christendom. Um, what are some of the major, I know you touch on this in your book, what would be a few, just a few things off the top of your mind that you've seen over the last few decades that have led to how we got here, even before the pandemic, right? So, yeah, I mean, really, when we're thinking about post-Christendom, we're going back into the post-World War II era because um, really, uh, 
some of the shifts that began to take place there are the ones that have come home and we now live live with as as our as the new reality or the current reality that we live in so when we think about how we got here we're we're uh really not just going back 10 years we have to go back uh um you know back to really uh especially after the second world war to the 50s and 60s and 40s 50s and then in moving into the 60s and there were a few really key factors where things started to change and i'll just sort of touch on them briefly much could be said about each of each of these things but i'll just kind of talk about them uh briefly so one of the things that i think really sh contributed to the shifting of north american culture was the reality of the growing affluence that began to take place uh, take root in north american culture uh, after the second world war there was actually a tremendous economic boom that took place uh, manufacturing took off and this eventually led to the rise of the of the technology sector and in canada uh, there was a tremendous uh, growth that took place uh, economically as, as um, uh, you know, men came home from the war, uh, mostly, mostly, not just men, but mostly men came home from the war and began to resettle. And, um, and there was a great rebuild taking place in Europe, which had been decimated by the war. And so there was an export industry in Canada and um, there was an, a, a, a real economic uh, upturn that took place in the country and people began to earn money and do well and um, oftentimes uh, economic flourishing is not always conducive to the development of the spiritual life and so the uh, the reality of the economic upturn and and the growth of uh, uh, the, the just the, the growing affluence in in Canada um, played a role in people maybe becoming less interested in, in, in spiritual things uh, or traditional things. Um, there was also other cultural realities that took place after the, the, the war that, uh, that played a role in that. And then at that time, and this was something that was really beginning to happen um, even into the end of the 19th century, but it's what we might call secularization. And, and secularization is a is a very multifaceted term, and there's lots there, and and, and it's 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 uh, it, there's a lot to it. But there were at least two key pillars of secularization that were beginning to to really take root in 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 Western in the Western world, not just in Canada, but Canada was part of it. It was the the idea of the 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 turn to scientific idealism, um, and this idea that um, or or sometimes we might call it rationalism. And it was this idea that as human beings, we could, we through, because of the developments of technology and science, we were increasingly learning how to, how to figure the world out on our own. And that we believed that through the developments of science and technology, increasingly we would have the ability to, to understand the world uh, by ourselves. This is kind of rooted in, in the modernist, uh, the enlightenment reality and modernism where there was this belief that uh, human beings uh, had the capacity to, to learn and to figure out the world. If we just work at it and continue to employ science and, and technology, we can understand the world. There's uh, not necessarily a need for religion or God. Uh, this is in some ways rooted in simple Darwinianism and the idea that uh, um, there's ways to explain the world without without believing or no or or thinking that there's some divine presence or power behind it and so scientific idealism 
played a big role in secularization. And then along with that, uh, even uh, the shifts that were taking place in religion. Um, and in religion, there was what we sometimes call uh, the, the rise of, of liberalism. Sometimes that's the term that's given to it. Uh, it was often rooted in Germany and in the German theological school. That might sound kind of like esoteric or off in the distance, but it actually made an impact on society um, as religious groups and religious thinkers began to do things like higher biblical criticism, historical biblical criticism, that began to look at ways of understanding the Bible that kind of pushed aside the miracles of Jesus and many of the stories and particularly the Old Testament as being mythological. And there was a reevaluating of, of, of religion and particularly the Bible as it rooted Christian religion. And as these things began to find some traction, they began to uh, bring about religious doubt or new ideas about how religion should practice. There was a lot more uh, commitment to sort of interfaith dialogue and those kinds of things. And the priority of place that Christianity had enjoyed in Western culture began to decline and it, it no longer held the same place that it once did. And then thirdly was the, the, the changing social context here in Canada in particular. For many, many years, Canada grew through immigration it came mostly out of Europe, uh, often Western Europe and also sometimes Eastern Europe. But when immigrants came from Western and Eastern Europe, they generally came to Canada as people who at least identified as Christians, uh, maybe Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, whatever. Um, not that they were all, you know, hardcore committed Christians. I'm not saying that. But they came as people who their religious background was Christianity. But increasingly, especially through the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, immigration patterns really shifted and changed in Canada, and immigration began to come from other parts of the world, and the people who came to Canada didn't necessarily identify as Christians. Now, still the majority of them often did, but much more the minority, a much bigger minority of immigration came from um, from Canada. Now, I want to be careful about saying that. I, I think immigration is good, and that the you know the fact that Canada is a country of immigrants from all around the world is actually a positive thing. But um, but the the shift in where immigration came from began to change the country. It began to change the social patterns, the social makeup of Canada, and as a result, it just was truthfully uh, less Christian. And so these were some of the key things that contributed to the shift in Canadian culture um, away from what might have been at one time something like the church near the center of culture increasingly being moved towards the margins. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about it, like uh, that uh, from your work and, and even dialoguing with you about this before, these are just things that uh, make sense like in in the landscape like if you truly th sit down and you think about some of the patterns you know you you, you begin to see here we are this is this the, these things ap absolutely are at play now one of the things uh, you talk about in the book which i love is just this posture that god's people have always been in primarily in exile um, you do a great job especially through the old testament talking about here israel is these nomads, they're um, often sojourning in, in lands, you know, they're you're trying to get to the promised land, obviously through Israel's story. And then you just see even through the prophets, the, the posture of exile and being taken to Babylon and 
all the things that are at play there. Um, talk, just talk to us about that. Talk, can you just um, help me, uh, a little bit in just connecting that and, and uh, maybe exile as a motif for the church today? Maybe we maybe first talk about the Old Testament and just how that kind of is a glimpse for us, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, one of the things that's true is that, um, you know, the, that um, the, the people of Israel in, in, in the Old Testament are never a powerful people. They're, they're always a very marginal. I mean, you know, um, we have this Abraham and Jacob and Isaac and Jacob, and, they're, and jo- they're on a journey. You know, they don't have, they're just journeying people. Then Joseph, whereas he ends up in Egypt and he's a slave in Egypt. I know he rises up, but, you know, he's, He's uh, he's his story is that he goes to Egypt as a slave. Then the, when we find the Israelite people, they're slaves in Egypt, and um, and they get delivered and they journey. And then even when they get their own land, Israel's never like the powerhouse nation of the world. They're just a small little country. If they, they just uh, they 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 have their independence and autonomy, and that's all a great thing. And it's God's work and it's God's delivering and God's provision for them and everything, but they're never the superpower. There's, there's always, they're always kind of living amongst all these bigger nations who, who, and, the, and they're in some jeopardy. And then of course, in, in the, in the early sixth century, they're exiled into Babylon, um, who were the superpower of the day until the Persians overtake them and then inherit is, Israel as, 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 as a people group that they're now in charge of. So yeah, the story of of Israel is not a story that sometimes oh they were the great power they had lots of power they were in charge I mean they had their own autonomy in the land but they were always a minority people and 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 always a a people who were living in many ways on the margins um, throughout the the history of of what we would call the Old Testament yeah. I always say, um, you know, like uh, this has implications then for the church because oftentimes what we want to do is a lot of times the church wants to clamor for power, one, I think, or like, and you, you see this throughout history and it doesn't work. But then two, sometimes it can be easy to take a posture of being really kind of either scared or, um, worried that the culture is going a particular way. Like, you know, there's lots of, there's obviously been lots of talk the last couple of decades just about how the church is changing and you've done a great job in articulating some of why that is. But with that can come a worry that, oh my goodness, things are changing so much. And yet here you have a little bit of a motif in the Old Testament of really what the church should be, even when it is the minority and, and on the margins. Well, yeah, and the other, well, the problem is, if you don't call it a problem, but the, the reality is, and I'll say problem just for, for the sake of being a little bit uh, provocative, is that for 1,500 years, we had power. So there was this thing, this thing we call Christendom, that, you know, kind of somehow sort of began in 313 when Constantine uh, declared with, you know, the, declared Christianity to be, uh, uh, an acceptable an acceptable religion within the Roman Empire, and it quickly rose to be kind of the de facto religion of the state. And then we had a pretty good run for fifteen hundred years, where in Western culture Christianity prevailed, and and that's a long time, fifteen hundred years. Now it's not the story of the Bible because, as I said, Israel was never that, and that we know the early church was never was 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 never that, and all that time in between the, what we call the intertestamental period, you know, between the Old and New Testament. 
the, uh, the Israel was the Jews were spread out all over the Roman Empire, and they were just a small little minority of people just basically trying to keep their heads above water. And and then came Christendom, and so for fifteen hundred years the church had a degree of power, sometimes absolute power in certain places. And um, um, but that's a story of the church, but it's not the story of the church. It's actually kind of an anomaly in the whole uh, big, big, big picture. Um, and so as we find ourselves in a place where, you know, uh, maybe we aren't where we once were, that it's actually more, it actually, the, the, the great hope of it is it actually puts us back in touch with the biblical story. It actually puts us back in touch with our ancestors of the faith who, who you know, they couldn't have imagined what it would have been like to actually have political power. Um, that was something I think, you know, especially the New Testament authors, they couldn't have even ever believed that this could be a possibility. Um, and so uh, the great thing about the motif of exile is it actually kind of helps us to go, uh, yeah, this is kind of more like like the stories in the Bible. These are the, we're, we're, we're a little closer now to what the people in the Bible uh, we're living through and what the writers of the Bible were talking about when they talked about what it meant to be God's people in a particularly in a minority context. So good. Yeah. And that I always try, like, I think we've been pretty honest, like in our uh, church community, as we wrestle through this the last number of years, and then obviously through the pandemic, um, when we talk about a posture of exile and um, I, even a, a couple of years ago, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada came out with some data around Canadians. And it wasn't, it, you could read it as though it's not very hopeful, but I've always just tried to pump the brakes on like, um, we don't live from a posture of fear. And when, if you actually look to the past, the, the, the people of God have done some really amazing things when they've been, again, on the on the margins or however you want to want to articulate it um i don't know if i'm putting you on the spot because uh, we didn't necessarily talk about this but um there's a couple of examples you share in the book about like old testament people and how this was kind of lived out do you mind sharing a couple of those examples or am i putting you on the spot here too too much uh, yeah. Great, yeah yeah uh, well yeah there, a couple I'll pick a couple at least um of really great examples and they're so good so interesting to me because they're quite different kinds of examples so you have on one hand you have um, you have Esther, who is this um, um, orphaned uh, Jewish girl who's raised by her cousin Mordecai, and she becomes the queen of Persia because, uh, for all intents and purposes, she wins a beauty contest and uh, and um, and uh, pleases the king the most, uh, which uh, you can read my book to figure out what I think that means, and uh, she she. Um, she um, um, becomes the queen of Persia and then finds out, of course, that the Jewish people have got this extermination order uh, against them because of the dastardly Haman. And um, anyway, but she works to, to, to overturn that and to save her, save her people. But she is portrayed as this, this uh, 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 Jewish, uh, this orphaned Jewish woman who... Um, who conceals her identity actually and conceals her Jewish identity um, in order to find her way into the Persian kingdom. But then she moves very adeptly uh, in the context of this very foreign society um, where she uh, 
is very much an alien and a stranger, but she figures her way out. She figures out how to use, how to work in certain ways and how to do things, often not in ways that would be considered kosher or according to Jewish law. And yet she's held up uh, as a great hero of the Jews because, because ultimately she puts her community's interests ahead of her own and she acts on behalf of her community, even at the potential, at her potential, uh, her own life is put, uh, put, put at stake in order to do that. And that's considered to be uh, righteousness. That's considered to be an act of, 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 of righteousness on, on Esther's part. And then on the other hand, we have Daniel. And Daniel is uh, also this guy who ends up in, in, in Persia um, with his friends, uh, his three friends. And, uh, and Daniel is the opposite. He's the epitome of faithfulness. You know, he won't eat their food. Um, he won't bow down to the, to the, to the idols. Um, when he's told not to pray, he can only pray to the, to, to the king. He, he, make, he goes right to his window and, and opens the, and he prays to Yahweh. And uh, Daniel uh, is the author. The he, does, he, goes, he does everything in the way he's, he practices his Hebrew Jewish faith uh, no matter what despite whatever edicts are put against him not to, he does. And he, of course, his, his work also has a powerful effects in converting Persians to, to Judaism or converting them to the Yahweh anyway, and, uh, and having this powerful impact that he has. And, and so, you know, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, we have these stories of, of these uh, people who are held up as examples of what it means to live faithfully as exiles, and yet their, their examples are, are very different. It reminds us that there's multiple ways for us, and we have to learn from both and sometimes figure out who we need to be in various contexts and what it means for us to live faithfully uh, within exile. But within, within um, the Old Testament, we have these examples of, of people who are held up to the community to say, if you live faithfully uh, for Yahweh in exile, Good things will happen, and our people will survive, and maybe even thrive in the midst of exile. And that's a great message for the church: that as we seek to live faithfully in exile, there's the possibility and the hope that we too can thrive, uh, uh, even even though our the circumstances may not always be ideal. So good, so good. So maybe practically, we'll uh, and then we'll take some questions in a couple uh, minutes here. But uh, just practically. What do you think that looks like for the church in Canada? Here we are, you know, already two decades into the <laughs> the two thousands, and just like time feels like it's flying as we look back at some of the shifts and and things that have happened. What what do you think uh, as we look both at the Old Testament and some of the things that has ha- that have happened over the last number of years? Uh, the, just the posture we should be taking. How does this flesh out for us? Do you think in kind of a new world? Well, there's lots of things. I, I think there are lots of small little nuances that we could look at. But, you know, a few things that I think um, is that it, 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 one of the key things that is always emphasized uh, throughout the Old Testament to, to in, in, in terms of exile and also in the New Testament, um, um, particularly in the epistle of 1 Peter, where Peter refers to his, his churches that he's writing to in Asia Minor, he refers to them as aliens and exiles. And um, one of the things that they always, that, that's highly emphasized is the issue of w- what does it mean to be God's people 
What does it mean for us to be his, his people? Which always means, really, the, the underlying question there is, what does it mean for us to be a holy people? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be, because holy, holy means sort of this idea of other than, of apart from. And, and so what does it mean to be a holy people? And what does it mean for us in Canada today to somehow demonstrate an alternative community, an alternative reality, a community of people who, who are somehow uh, decidedly different or unique from the mainstream? Um, and, 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 and for us, I think a lot of that comes down to thinking about the teaching of Jesus and probably as it's embodied most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. And what does it mean for us to be a people who take that seriously and, and seek to live into that so that somehow um, we, we live a life of holiness, both individually and corporately, that offers to the world a distinctive vision? Because that's really what Israel was called to do. They were called to be a people who offered a distinct vision of what it was like to be in relationship with this God called Yahweh. And then the, Jesus' disciples were called to be a people who were embodying God's kingdom as it was embodied in Jesus and what it meant to follow, to follow him. And so I think our challenge uh, is, is also is, is the same, is to, fi to figure that out, to live, this, to live a life of, of holiness, but it's a life of what I call engaged holiness. Because it can't be a life of holiness that's, you know, let's, let's get apart from the world, let's get apart somehow and stay apart. But no, it's a life that says, how do we engage the world? How do we be in the world? How do we be a part of the world? And yet somehow embody this distinction that comes with being a disciple of Christ. And I think that's a key thing for, for, for the, the, the church today. And then it's also this idea of, along with that, that idea of engagement. Um, and because we're, we're attached to the God of mission, we're attached to a God who's on mission, who cares deeply about, the, about people experiencing his love and his redemptive love. And he calls his church, his people, to embody that redemptive love and to demonstrate it to the context in which they find themselves. And so then it's for the church to say, okay, how can we get engaged here? How can we be missional in this community? How can we uh, add value to this community? How can we help this community flourish? How can we bring God's kingdom to bear in this little context in which we find ourselves and really take that seriously and figure out, you know, what does it mean in this context? It's different everywhere. It can be different. One place could be one thing, one where it could be another thing somewhere else, but it's to say in my place, in my little community, you know, how can we show the life and love of Christ to this place and, uh, and get serious about it? Let's get, let's get, let's get, get into this and let's get busy doing this and be engaged in mission. So those are just a couple of big picture kind of things. It's this idea of cultivating the, uh, a, a, a genuine, authentic, engaged holiness, and then figuring out what does it mean for us to be uh, joining God and his mission in our little slice of the world here. So good. And I love the countercultural piece because um, I just think, yeah, I think we're realizing more and more that we need to give uh, the what we have to offer the world is something completely different, not something that's the same with a little bit of Jesus slapped on it, you know, like even our gatherings and how we live and move as the church. Um, 
I just love that vision of uh, working from the margins, working in, from a posture of exile, but also inviting people into a countercultural way. It's so good. I know you, when we, we kind of prepped and we were chatting a bit, I know you don't want to do this, but like, no, it, no, no, it's good. I know. I, I just, it is true. So we've been talking on like, okay, the shifts and practice, we talk about that a lot. Like here we are in a post-Christian moment. And we were probably really ramping up and talking about that a lot in 2016, 2017, 2018. And then this thing, and I know like for some, it's just like, gosh, do we always have to talk about COVID and the global pandemic? But I think it adds another layer. Like as the church was moving a certain trajectory in Canada, now all of us have had these different layers. And I know the fear on a lot of our ends is none of us are experts in a pandemic and none of us can look in a magic ball and know what the church is like, what the church is going to be now. Um... I, I have stopped using a post-pandemic world because I think we continually put our foot in our mouth. We're certainly not post-pandemic, but I, I've been using the word pandemic-shaped. You know, like there's obviously a lot of moving pieces, just like post-Christendom, there's a lot of moving pieces now. So it'd just be interesting to hear, what do you think the pandemic, pandemic-shaped church is going to look like in Canada? Do you Do you have any thing that's on your heart of, as you've been, you know, leading pastors through this in seminary and ex- maybe even some experience in your own church and church plant? Yeah. So some of it may be related a little bit to the actual sort of changes that have taken place. And I would say just to everyone, yeah, this is the truth. Like we're all, no one knows, like nobody knows for sure. So, um, and I don't pretend to say this is, I, here's what, here's the, here's what you need to know. Cause uh, nobody really knows, <coughs> excuse me exactly what how we're going to land and, 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 and what that's going to mean. But I do think it means a few things for sure um, in terms of sort of what we're going to, what we're going to, what we've learned coming out of COVID in terms of, and, and what's just going to be the truth of the world when we come out of COVID. So it's going to continue to be the digital side of things or the online side of things is not going to stop just when we, when COVID ends. So the church has to figure out like what's what's going to be our our approach to and our um, philosophy of and our use of the the, the digital realities and 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 how do we make that work um, in in a way that that still builds community and 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 somehow fulfills the really does authentic discipleship and mission and evangelism and all that how do we do that knowing that some people uh, are going to gravitate to an online uh, thing more, and and you know, and this idea that we did online, and I know uh, lots of churches were using online stuff before the pandemic. I, I know that, but but it's it's certainly upped it to that idea that says like, you know, what can we do? Like, you know, maybe online's okay. Like, maybe we can do good work online. And it's all right. And how are we going to use that? And how are we going to uh, uh, capitalize on 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 the reality of of this digital world? And and do try and figure out what it, how to do good discipleship, et cetera, et cetera, in a, in an online world. And be a good, be the church uh, in in an online world. Some people are gonna are gonna embrace that and want that. And and um, we have to. So I think we have to embrace that too. Uh, figure that out. The other thing I think is that while this was already becoming increasingly true, what's what the pandemic has done is I think it's made things even more local um, in that we, and even, and, and maybe even, I think, 
Um, and this was, again, I think a trend that was already happening, but, you know, smaller. And um, that the future is probably built around a smaller um, missional uh, communities than, you know, big uh, sort of um, cookie cutter. And I say that not to be dis derisive, but, you know, your garden variety evangelical uh, church that uh, you know we're, are prevalent and we're prevalent probably the future is going to be a lot more around innovative informal smaller local congregations that are committed to their neighborhoods that are committed to their cities um, communities and that um, are seeking to develop some kind of you know uh, authentic uh, relationship with them each other and with their community um, and, and aren't that concerned about whether the lighting is just right on Sunday or the, the you know, whether the band's really hot or not. You know, I'm not, I'm trying not to be too dismissive of that, but I, I'm, I mean, I think there'll always be people who want that. I think I'm not saying that's over and dead, but I'm not sure that's the future. And, and I'm not sure that that's actually the way forward uh, for churches to think in, 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 as we, as I think COVID has, has shifted some of that and um, maybe brings us back to a, to a, a more um, wanting to be in a more uh, intimate, authentic kind of, kind of place and, and, and community. And I'm not saying big churches can't do that. I'm not saying that, but not always, and maybe not the best. Um, I think that, um, yeah, I think those are a, a couple of things, but, but then, um, um, with that also comes, and maybe this isn't, again, I'm not sure how much this is a COVID thing, but um, we have some things that we will face in the future here that are, the church has only, has not even begun to understand the full implications of them. For instance, the reality of the rise of the nuns, you know, the religious nuns and people increasingly divorcing themselves from religious affiliation, not necessarily from God, but from religious affiliation. And we have not started to begin to even feel what the impact of that truth is um, yet. And we only will start to feel that in the next tw 10, 20, 30 years as to what, how that's gonna shift the context of ministry in Canada. And then another one, and I'll stop here just to, for, <laughs> for time's sake, um, um, is the is the 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 way that artificial intelligence is changing the world, and that might sound really remote. That might sound like what does that have to do with ministry? It has everything to do with the way people are going to live their lives uh, based on algorithms, based on opportunities, based on the reality that that artificial intelligence is going to uh, have a, a huge influence over our thinking, over the way we live. It's going to create things, ethical issues for us that the church. Uh, ha has not even begun to think about yet. And um, ministry in the next 30 years is going to be a lot about figuring out, um, is this right? Is this wrong? How should we think about this as Christians? Because this stuff is stuff we've never seen. Is it okay? And I'm not trying to be too provocative here, but this is a real thing. And it's, it's is it okay to, to have sex with a robot? Is that wrong if I have sex with a, ro a robot? Because that's a real thing, actually. It's actually out there it's not mainstream yet but it will be someday is that a sin for me to do that because it's just a robot it's a, all of these are issues that the church are is going to face and um 
these are tremendous challenges for people going into ministry uh, in these days. For sure. And just even the truth piece, like uh, the, even the reality of like post-truth is now a word and like some of the, the political implications that have uh, spawned a kind of this new world of, like you said, um, uh, and this is not like conspiracy stuff, but even troll farms like uh, that disseminate information and misinformation. And ha- I think you're absolutely right. What we've seen, it all com- it seems to have all combusted, or at least the the, the pressure cooker has heated up through COVID because everybody was home. There was a lot of things spiraling uh, uh, politically. I guess more so to our brothers and sisters in the South, like obviously with their political climate and some of the things going on. And then um, a number of other moving pieces that seemed to happen during COVID where there were, you know, there's been a lot of mistruths. And and, uh, so it is, is, I agree, it is challenging. And it's going to, this is something maybe that the church has to grapple with that, they di- we didn't as much at least a couple decades ago. Not that there wasn't lies out there, but um, how these things are pushed on us through social media, through media. It's 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 fascinating, and I think that's such an important takeaway as well. With like the tr- we have to grapple with this. We have to be truth tellers, and that's not always easy. And we've got to confront sometimes, oftentimes, most of the time, the lies. Um, that are perpetuated in culture for sure. So, so, so good. I mean, the, all those things. I think of the rise of the nuns. Um, uh, I think, you know, COVID probably has sped up a little bit too um, uh, what we've been seeing with the trends with the, the nuns. And again, we're not talking Whoopi Goldberg. We're talking people with no uh, religious affiliation, right? Like um, it's probably COVID with like the shutdown of the public gathering and less and less guilt around that, you know, when something goes away for a couple of years and it's like, okay, I have like family guilt. I'm in my twenties, I'm in my thirties and mom and dad want me to go to church. When that goes away for like, you get to stay home for two years or whatever, year and a half. Um, I'm sure there's been some speeding up of that. So such important things to wrestle through. Um, I was just going to say, uh, it's been great to just, I think the importance of grappling with, um, I always think uh, why we are where we are and then, you know, how we can move forward. And I just I think uh, I just want to firmly just um, what you've shared around the church of the future. I do. I, I love the posture of Israel as a great example for us. Obviously, they were not perfect. <laughs> they, they had their moments. Uh, but I think um, even what you've shared about these these key characters um, um, I, I know we've talked a little bit and we talk a little bit about this at Praxis, just the punk rock nature of the church in the future is going to be, uh, and I mean that in the best sense of kind of coming from uh, a position where we don't have power and we've got to be more creative. I even think, I, I don't know if you touched this on your, in your book, but just even Israel in the diaspora, like, um, uh, the creativity it took and what, what came out of that was the synagogue, Right, like the temple was just destroyed, and what came out of that was local, the spread of stuff all over the place to synagogues, and what that took, and how actually, in some sense, that became better for a season in their story of being spread out. I, 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 I agree, man. Like I think, um, uh, really faithful, rooted. It doesn't it doesn't matter as much about size as much as faithful, rooted communities and people together, I think is the way forward for sure. Yeah, that's the great thing about exile is it was generative. It it caused them to rethink their faith, 
um, in, in constructive ways. Most, a lot of the, most scholars will say a lot of the Old Testament was written during exile or even into the latter parts of exile. And, and, and uh, so it generated all this theological uh, thought. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew canon started to be formed. It wasn't completely formed, but it, they started to form the, 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 what we would call the Old Testament at that time. So it had all kinds of really positive uh, positive impact. And this will be the last thing I'll say, because I do, I kind of want to end on this, and especially to you students, uh, as you're thinking about, as you're in ministry, thinking about going into, into ministry, is it, so my, not the, my, whatever my book, but anyway, it's called Living in Exile, but it's called, uh, it's called uh, Living in Hope After Christendom. Because I think there's lots of hope, because that's the other thing about exile. So Israel goes into exile, and they have to figure out how are we going to make it? How are we going to survive? And they did. Yeah. Like they're still here. The people of Israel, who are the Jewish people, they're still with us. They, they, they found their way through it. And the early church, who started as this minuscule little persecuted minority of people in first century, in the first century uh, Roman Empire, uh, they had to figure out, well, how do we live out this Jesus thing? And are we even going to survive? How are we going to make it? And look at, you know, where the, what happened. And we're here tonight because they figured it out. So we have lots of reason to hope that God is with us. His spirit is still active and uh, we'll figure it out too. He, with his grace and help, uh, as we stay faithful and persevere as his church, even in our context. So uh, we have reason to have hope because uh, those who have gone before us have faced uh, similar challenges and um, found their way through. So great. So great. And what a great way to end as far as, again, and I think I said earlier, like when we talk about this stuff, even when it's like, it feels like it could feel negative. Like when you talk about maybe decline in certain areas, I always just want to reaffirm that there's so much hope because you've seen the, we've, we have these ancient stories, the way that God has moved. And we have the story of the early church from a posture of just being faithful and rooted and together in and amongst the mess of trying to figure out this new way of Jesus, like the mess that Paul had to, no, the messes that Paul had to deal with amongst all of that, um, these faithful communities and really us um, leaning into that for the future. So thanks, Lee. Hey, why don't I do this? Um, I'm going to just pray for us. And uh, thank you for logging on and taking time. And I know this will also be, uh, even beyond this, uh, a blessing to others, as a few have just asked, like, if just for the recording and whatnot, I know that this type of discussion, as Lee talked about, like, learning from this, this is why we wanted to do this. And and uh, at the, uh, you know, amongst all the shifts of the pandemic, too, why not talk about this stuff now as we look to our future? So let me pray for us. Father, I just thank you so much for today. Thank you for this community, this group that, that has come tonight. Um, I just pray that we would come just with our minds and our hearts uh, kind of attuned, God, to you working within us. God, may we just be learners. Maybe we, may we be wrestlers as your followers so that we can walk into a better future for our churches, our communities, and um, where you've placed us as Jesus followers. So everything we've talked about, I pray that we take to heart. And as we talk about the future, too, may we lean in and step into the things, God, that you're calling us to. God, we want to love you with heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we just, Jesus, cannot, as though you've, though you've called us to this great mission and work here, we cannot wait for when you return and make all things new. But in the meantime, you, do, you have. You've called us 
to live for you. And so we do that. And we just almost make like a re-declaration of that, a recommitment to that today amongst all that we've talked about. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, super pumped we have an opportunity to do this in this environment. Thanks, Lee, and thanks for those of you that have joined in. And I know if you have any questions or maybe uh, any wrestling, for sure, like just reach out. I know Lee's available um, in any way and has done a great job uh, just with uh, pastors and, and leaders. So great. Yeah, you can find me on the McMaster Divinity College website, my email address, and I can help or if you have any more questions or anything. Perfect. Perfect. Well, that's a wrap. That was great. Thanks. And uh, we'll just, we'll see you all soon and hope you have a great evening. Grace and peace to you all.